Please turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, the 14th chapter, and we will read again, beginning at verse 22 of Matthew chapter 14. And let me just uh, say, and I'll say this again in a couple of seconds, that this is one of those pivotal moments in Peter's life. Peter's life is marked by these pivotal moments, and I suspect you can identify with him. There are pivotal moments in the life of faith, and I'm I'm sure there have been pivotal moments in your lives. And so we want to freeze frame this moment in Peter's life. And again this week, seek to learn some things from it. So begin reading with me at verse 22 of chapter 14 of Matthew's Gospel. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Let's ask for God's blessing as we think about his word together. Lord, uh, take Again, this word, take this picture of Peter sinking in the water and, and of yourself speaking peace to him and reaching out your hand to him and lifting him up. Lord Jesus, make that picture live somehow before our eyes so that we, like Peter, may continually be calling upon you to be our Savior and our Redeemer and our friend. Lord Jesus, come by your Spirit and do these things for us, we ask, and we pray in your name. Amen. You may be seated. I bet uh, three people, at least three people, three or four, I don't think it was as many as six, but I know it was more than two, came up to me afterward, after the service last week, and they said, have you heard of this book? If you're going to walk with Jesus, you've got to get out of the boat. And I hadn't. And I, I'm probably going to have a half a dozen copies on my desk if people fulfill their promise to me to get me a copy of it. 
If you're going to walk with Jesus, you've got to get out of the boat. We're taking a second look at this passage in Matthew. Uh, It's a story that's probably uh, familiar to most of you. It's a defining moment for Peter. Uh, There are many defining moments in his life. Um, This is one of them. They're scattered, sprinkled across uh, the New Testament. We're looking at Peter's life because of the sermons that we considered together in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, a passage that focuses on change and how people change, the nature of that change. Another word to use for change is growth. Where there is growth, there is change. Where there is change, there is growth. And we're looking at Peter because Peter grows and Peter changes. And the thing that changes in Peter among all of the other things that we could say and observe and identify as being points at which Peter changes, the point at which Peter changes is that central place. He changes at the core of his being with respect to faith. And that's, that's the critical thing here, folks. Uh, that's where all other change originates. It originates because of a change, a growth, a transformation, a metamorphosis of faith. It's not first. I just think this is really critical. It's not first about moral rehabilitation or character improvement. It's not in the first instance about a a conformity to a code, a list of do's and don'ts. Don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls who do. You've heard that too many times. It's not about being polite, it's not about being nice, it's not about being courageous or faithful. Not in the first instance. In the first instance, it is about change with respect to faith. John 6, verse 28, Jesus is asked by those listening to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So Jesus is asked the question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus' surprising answer, stunning answer, is, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And remember, I know you know this, but it so bears repeating. Remember that belief is not a brain thing. It's not a function of, of, of intellectual assent. We've said this, there is a content to the faith, and we're, we're weaving into this look at Peter's growth in faith. Uh, I hope a deeper understanding of the content of the faith. The content of the faith is the person of the faith. And there are true things about him, but belief is more than just intellectual assent to true things about Jesus. Belief is trust. Belief is entrusting myself. If you you get a Greek concordance, and you can do this, you can do this online. There are so many resources out there. You can just look this up yourself. 
you will find that the New Testament word for faith has as its synonyms belief and trust. Trust. Belief is to trust. And very, very often in the New Testament, when the word belief is connected to Jesus, believing in Jesus, the little preposition that connects the verb with the object is the little preposition into, suggesting direction, suggesting movement, believing into Jesus. And that's what's happening for Peter. That's what's happening to Peter. Peter's faith into Jesus, his trust in Jesus is growing. Everything else eventually will take care of itself. Not without some struggle. Not without more fits and starts and ups and downs and, and, and body slams. But all of the other stuff, moral reformation, character development, courage, faithfulness, all of that stuff will take care of itself. The first order of business is faith, real trust in Jesus. And that's what we see developing here. So here we are. I've asked you to freeze frame this moment. From Matthew 14. So here we are in the boat with Peter in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the night. It's 3 a.m. The winds are howling. The waves are crashing against the side of the boat. He's being threatened. His life is in danger. And Jesus comes walking to him from the mountain. Walking across the water. And Peter says, if it is you, bid me come. And Jesus says, come. And he gets out of the boat. And he walks in the direction of Jesus. On the water. Doing the unthinkable, the unimaginable. And then he's distracted by the wind. And he loses sight of Jesus. And he begins to sink. Are you with me so far? And he asked Jesus to rescue him. And the text says that Jesus did it immediately. Immediately. And then Jesus says to Peter, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Great question, isn't it? You wake up in the middle of the night. I had somebody say this to me just yesterday. He said, how do you sleep? How are you sleeping? Do you sleep well at night? I said, yeah, for a while. (laughs) And then you wake up in the middle of the night and your three constant companions, fear, worry, and anxiety, your three constant companions assault you. Right? You've seen the movie A Beautiful Mind? Fabulous movie. He has these three constant companions. They're not really real, but they seem so real to him. You wake up in the middle of the night and you're distracted and you lose faith and fear and worry and anxiety about whatever, dread, begins to capture and imprison your heart. So there you are in that moment. 
on the water with Peter, losing sight of Jesus. And it's good to ask some questions at that point, with that moment freeze-framed in our vision. Three questions. Big surprise there. What is Peter learning? What is Peter learning as you have that moment freeze-framed in your minds, in your vision? How is Peter learning it? And to what end is Peter learning? What is Peter learning? How is Peter learning it? And to what end is Peter learning? This is going to seem, I'm I'm afraid, this is going to seem really, really obvious. So maybe this sermon is just for me. But what Peter is learning is this. He is learning who Jesus really is and that Jesus is an object worthy of his trust. We talked about it a little bit last week. He is learning who Jesus is and that Jesus is an object worthy of his trust. I want you to notice the progression that there is in the passages that we've looked at up to this point. I want you to notice what is said about Jesus, and I want you to notice how Peter's response to Jesus shifts and changes through just those three passages over what is probably just a period of several months. Go back, if you would, to John chapter 1, the first of the passages that we looked at. When Jesus calls Peter, identifies him, and tells him, that he will be Peter, he will become Peter, his name will be Peter. If you read those verses, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51, here's what you'll see. I think we just glanced off of this a couple of weeks ago and didn't have time to look at it. What you'll notice as you read that passage is that there are different titles that different people use in speaking of Jesus. John the Baptist, in verse 36, calls him the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Now, if you're a Jew, what imagery does that conjure up for you? What picture does that language conjure up for you? It conjures up for you the Day of Atonement. It conjures up for you the Passover where on both occasions, the Passover, which is deliverance, atonement, which is what ensures continuing fellowship with God, involves sacrifice, doesn't it? The shedding of blood. Lamb of God. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. Look, anybody who comes under the blood, this is Exodus 12, anybody who comes under the blood is safe. Do you know you're under the blood? Do you know you're in the house where the blood has been spread across the doorpost and lintels so that when the angel of death and judgment passes over, you are safe and secure, the Lamb of God. Verse 38, he's called rabbi, teacher. Fairly pedestrian term. But what is a teacher? A teacher is someone who knows something you don't know and you go to that person to get from that person what it is that you don't know. And he is the teacher, capital R. Verse 41, he is the Messiah. 
you know, all of these titles, we, they, they just are tips of the iceberg. What is the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? He is the anointed one. Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has messiahed me. He has anointed me to preach glad tidings to the poor, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the recovery of sight to the blind. He has commissioned me to proclaim the binding up of hearts that are broken. The Messiah. Verse 45 He is called by Philip, he is referred to by Philip as him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Probably a reference to the passage in Deuteronomy where Moses says, One like me will come from among you. One like Moses. What is that? Deliverer, prophet, the one who stands as a mediator of a covenant between God and a people. Verse 49, Nathanael calls him the Son of God and the King of Israel. And then Jesus, in verse 51, says of himself, Nathanael, you think it was a big deal that I knew you before I was introduced to you? You think it's a big deal that I saw you under the fig tree and knew who you were? Let me tell you something. You're going to see something, you're going to experience something, you're going to be exposed to something immeasurably more majestic and glorious and stunning than that. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. The Son of Man. The Son of Man is the title that Jesus uses of himself, when speaking of himself more than any other. And it is a title that comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. The ancient of days. What a glorious ascription offered to God. The ancient of days, one who has no beginning, will have no end, who lasts as long and longer than time lasts. One like a son of man comes to him, and to him, to this one like a son of man, listen to this, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. All peoples, all languages, all nations. You know, just a little parenthesis here. You know it is the case that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God his Father. There will be vast multitudes who will gladly bow and gladly confess. And tragically, there will be vast multitudes 
that will be constrained to bow in the midst of their unbelief, but who will nevertheless bow and acknowledge that all power and all authority and all dominion has been given to Jesus and that he has a kingdom which will never pass away and never be destroyed. He is the Son of Man. And you get all those titles in John chapter 1. You get all of those designations, including the self-designation Son of Man. But you know what? It's so interesting, isn't it? In John chapter 1, you don't hear a peep out of Peter. You don't hear a peep out of Peter. You hear Nathaniel saying things. You hear Philip saying things. You hear John saying things. But not a peep out of Peter. And then you come to chapter 5 of Luke. Again, a passage that describes this great catch of fish where Peter has been out fishing all night. An event, an occasion in Peter's life that probably happens within just a few months of John chapter 1. And look at how Peter responds to Jesus. This is so telling, friends. After Jesus has taught the crowds and dismisses the crowds, or with the crowds even standing there, he gets into a boat, he's out in a boat, he teaches the people. When he finishes, he says to Peter, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And how does Peter respond to Jesus? This one who has been identified as the Lamb of God, the Messiah of God, the Son of God, the King of Israel. Oh, Master. Oh, Master. That's the first peep out of Peter. And what he uses, the word that he uses is simply a generic term that describes somebody who has some measure of station above you. He just calls him Master. He doesn't call him Messiah. He doesn't call him son of God. He doesn't call him king of Israel. He doesn't call him son of man. Don't you wonder what's been going on in his head across these months? He's heard him teach. He's listened to him. He's watched him do some things. He addresses him here simply as master in Luke chapter 5. And then the great catch of fish. The miracle the first miracle in Luke's gospel that Peter is a first-hand witness to. And what is Peter's response? It's no longer master, is it? It is now curios. It is now Lord. It is now the term, the title, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the title that is used as an honorific, a designation, a descriptor of Caesar, who is Lord of everything. You see the progression? You see the movement? Peter in John 1 is hearing these things. You know he's contemplating these things. You get to Luke chapter 5, and he calls him master, and then there is this massive shift. No longer master. No longer an interesting person. But now, he is Lord. And you see what's happening for Peter, don't you? 
We said a couple of weeks ago there are two things, two key lessons as we watch Peter's life unfold before us. He has to come to terms with himself and he has to come to terms with Jesus. And he's coming to terms with Jesus. And it doesn't happen overnight, folks. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. There's this wonderful scene in Prince Caspian, one of Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Lucy has been searching for Aslan. And she finally finds Aslan. She finally sees him. And she says, Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, at last. And he rolls on the ground and she buries herself in his massive bulk and mane. And he says, welcome child. And she says, Aslan, you're bigger. And he says... That is because you are older, little one. That is because you are older, little one. Boy, that is a little exchange that requires some exposition. Notice that Lewis doesn't say, I'm bigger because you're bigger. No, he says, you are older, little one. Still a little one, but older. And then, and then Lucy says, not because you are bigger. No, not because I am bigger. Every year you grow, you will find me bigger. That's what's happening with Peter. Don't you take great comfort in that? Isn't that encouraging to you? Hear this one in whom Jesus would invest so much, entrust to so much. He has to grow. His faith has to enlarge. And his conception of Jesus has to get bigger so that Jesus increasingly becomes an object worthy of his faith. I say this to you because I have so many conversations with folks who say their faith is so weak. We had a, we had a, converse, I had a conversation like this just a couple of weeks ago. A fellow said to me, do you think we make any progress in the Christian faith? And I don't have a thing up here to draw a picture on, but I drew this kind of a thing, you know, a funnel that we sort of start at the narrow end of the funnel. And the ironic and paradoxical thing is that as we move down the funnel, what gets bigger is the cross of Jesus. There's this sense in which I see myself as increasingly small, and I see that to which God calls me as increasingly unreachable and unattainable. And what fills that gap is the cross, is Aslan, who seems to grow bigger, but who is always way bigger than my conception of him. That's what's happening with Peter. And how is Peter learning this? 
Again, maybe this feels like a rehearsal of what we talked about last week. But as I reflected on this passage, I thought, man, I need, I need to talk about this some more. How does Peter learn this? Where does this happen? Well, let me tell you, it doesn't happen in a textbook. My friends, it does not happen in a theological seminary. It does not happen in a Christian school. It doesn't even happen in a Christian home. It happens in life. It happens in life. It happens in experience. It happens in the day-to-day business of living. I heard someone say, I think it was Tim Keller. He's getting lots of credit for lots of things these days, so I'll give him credit for this too. Said years ago, you learn 5% about preaching from reading books on preaching. You learn 10% about preaching from listening to other people preach. And you learn 85% about preaching from preaching. When you need a surgery, do you want a surgeon who's done it five times or 5,000 times? You want practice, practice, practice. You want experience. How does this thing grow? How does it happen? It happens from experience. That is how Jesus gets bigger. And here's the interesting thing. And this is one of the points that we didn't make last week that I want to point out to you this week. You look at Matthew chapter 14, verse 22, and there is this striking statement. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. He made the disciples get into the boat. Who? Who he? Jesus he. Jesus he who is all of those things that we see in John chapter 1, who is, as Peter confessed in Luke chapter 5, he is Lord. That Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Now think about this. Do you suppose that this one who describes himself as the Son of Man the one who knew where the fish were in Luke chapter 5, the one who had previously stilled another storm in Matthew chapter 8, the one who just prior to this experience on the lake had fed 5,000 people with a little boy's Happy Meal from McDonald's. Do you suppose for a minute that that Jesus was entirely unaware that in just a few hours, those disciples would find themselves in the middle of the lake, in the midst of a storm, their lives at risk, terrified that they would be destroyed. Do you suppose for a minute that Jesus was taken by surprise by the storm that he sent the disciples into? I don't think so. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing as he always does. We confessed our faith this morning in a way that I hope was arresting for you. We took this little paragraph from the Westminster Confession of Faith and the last three sentences, two of which are exclamations, read this way. He governs their hearts. Whose hearts? 
those who have come to him, those who have believed in him, those who have embraced him, he governs their hearts by his word and spirit and overcomes. Do you believe these things? If you don't, you shouldn't have said what you said because God is here and God heard you say it when you said it. He governs their hearts by his word and spirit. And, and I understand that you don't really have a choice. I mean, it's printed and you want to participate and so you say what's there. But listen to what you said. He governs their hearts by his word and spirit and overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such ways as are most in agreement with his wonderful and unknowable administration of all things. Hallelujah. Praised be God. And that is spoken of the Son of Man. And it was as true of him when he sent those boys into that boat and out on that lake as it is true of him as king of glory, ruling and reigning from his father's right hand over everything for the sake of his church. He knew exactly what he was doing when he sent those boys, those young men, those sons of fathers and mothers out into the midst of that lake. If you read John's account, John chapter 6, of the feeding of the 5,000, which takes place just before this episode, if you read John's account of it, you will see this exchange between Philip and Jesus. Jesus saying to Philip, why don't you get some food for these people to eat? And Philip's, and, and he asks him that question. The text says, knowing what he would do. He knew what he was going to do. And he asked Philip the question anyway. And why did he ask Philip that question? He asked Philip that question to test his faith, to test whether or not he, Jesus, was growing larger and larger and larger in Philip's vision. Why does Jesus put these boys in this boat and send them out into the middle of the lake? Because in the wisdom of Jesus, in agreement with his most most wonderful and unknowable administration of all things, Jesus knew that it was time to put Peter's faith to a test. And he sent him out into that storm, knowing full well that it would terrify Peter, that it would wreak havoc on his heart. And he did it so that Peter could better understand the weakness of his own faith and gain a greater apprehension of the majesty and power and trustworthiness of Jesus. I've told this story before. Bear with me if you have already heard it. Many of you haven't, probably most of you. When my middle daughter, the mother of my only grandson, Sam, just for the record, When my middle daughter was four years old, she was in our backyard. She was playing on the swing set. There was a tree right next to that swing set. It was a great tree for climbing. The kids loved to climb the tree. We just had one rule with respect to the tree. You can only climb the tree if mom or dad are out here. There's Leslie, 
swinging on the swing, slowing down, eyeing the tree. You know where this is going. Gets out of the swing, walks over to the tree, climbs up about seven feet above the ground. And she can't get down. And I'm watching this whole thing. And I let her do it. I walked out as my daughter began to say, Dad? Daddy? I'm I'm literally from here to the front row of chairs. I'm close enough. She's safe, but she's seven feet above the ground, and she can't get down. And so what does Daddy do? Daddy walks out to the tree, and Daddy says, Leslie, are you supposed to climb in the tree without mom or dad being here? No. Leslie, why do dad and mom want you not to climb the tree without us here? Because I might get hurt. And why else, Leslie? Why else? Because you love me. Because you love me. Now the question is, why does a loving dad let his daughter get herself in trouble? So that she will learn to trust that her dad really does love her. And that he is an object worthy of her trust. Not ultimately, but as I am absolutely convinced the reason God structured the family the way that he structured it is so that children would learn to trust their parents so that when the time came, they would understand that what they've learned when it comes to trust now gets transferred to the perfect parent whom they can trust at all times and in all places with every word he speaks. Why did I let her climb in that tree and not go rescue her before she got herself in trouble so that she would learn to trust the one who loves her? Why did Jesus send those boys out into the boat in that storm to test their faith so that they would learn that he is a worthy object, the only object worthy of their entire trust. He sent them out into that storm so that his size would increase in their conception. It's a growth thing for Peter. And you ask, why does God send me into this storm? Why does God move me in this direction? Why do I find myself in this particular place? My friends, my brothers and sisters, I may have been born at night, but I wasn't born last night. I've been a Christian for over 40 years. I've been in the ministry for over 35 years, and this is a lesson I am still learning today. The reason, among others, the reason that storms come into our lives the reason that Jesus allows us to be in the boat in the midst of the storm 
is so that we might learn that he is an object worthy of our trust so that he might grow bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in our conception of him. And what is the end or the purpose to which Peter is learning? What is the final outcome? That Peter might trust him. That Peter might believe him. That Peter might have faith into him. That Peter might abandon himself. That Peter might mistrust everything other than him. Mistrust everything other than him. Find that there is nothing, no one other than Jesus who is an object worthy of my trust. Let's look at it from a couple of different angles. You could think of it in terms of Isaiah 57 verse 15 where God says, I am the high and holy one. I inhabit eternity and I also dwell with him who is of a contrite and humble spirit. Why does Jesus put those boys in that boat and send them out in the storm? Because Jesus has two residences. Jesus inhabits eternity. He is the high and holy one. But there is another place where Jesus delights to dwell. And he delights to dwell with the humble And what has to happen in order for Jesus to dwell with the humble? They have to be humbled. What has to happen if Jesus is to dwell with the contrite? They have to become contrite. Or think of it in these terms. John chapter 14, verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will love him and come to him and make our home with him. What is Jesus doing with Peter out on the boat? Jesus says here, if anyone keeps my word... If anyone keeps my word, my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. What is Jesus doing with Peter out in the boat? He is trying to get Peter to understand that there is one voice to be listened to, one voice that is worthy of his trust. And when he listens to that voice, this unthinkable, unimaginable thing happens. The God of heaven and earth is pleased to dwell in him, take up residence in him and so what is Peter what is Jesus doing he's working not only for Peter's trust he is working for Peter's affection he's not only working to drive Peter's pride and self-reliance out of the center of his life he is working so that Peter will love him And we'll find every other love to be a false love. 
do we see everything that Jesus is doing in our lives being done so that he might win our hearts to himself so that we might love him and trust him above every other conceivable love. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I do pray for myself and I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Lord, I'll be brazen enough to pray for some folks here whose faces I don't recognize. I'll pray for us all that you will do in our lives whatever is necessary to drive out of our hearts those lovers that will only betray us and plant in our hearts yourself in all of your majestic beauty loveliness and glory that we might know you to be an object worthy of our trust, worthy of our obedience, and worthy of our love. Come, Lord Jesus, hear this prayer. Answer it today and across the days of our lives. And we will praise and thank you for it. And we do pray in your name. Amen.